Hey gang, welcome to episode 18 of the No Presidium podcast, your podcast about immersive and interactive theater and its ilk. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, and we're back from a special two-parter on Hamlet Mobile. Hope you guys enjoyed those episodes as much as I did. Uh, you know exactly how much I enjoyed them because you heard me giggling through uh, the second one. Um, hey, this time out, uh, we're going in a totally different direction, mostly. Uh, Sam Roberts, who is the festival director of Indiecade, which is uh, the big indie games festival that happens once a year around here in L.A., in Culver City to be exact, uh, he's on the show. Uh, Sam uh, has a, a deep theater background, so uh, we're going to talk about that intersection between video games uh, and not even video games, like all games and immersive theater. Uh, this is in part uh, a response to uh, Jarrett Lance, I hope I got your name right there, uh, who wrote in uh, after the last Open Forum episode uh, with the idea that we should be covering uh, narrative games a little more. And um, it just so happens uh, Sam got back to me uh, from from an earlier thing, and I knew Indicator was coming up, and it all just clicked. I was going to do all this after the news, but guess what? I'm doing it right now. So, um, so Jarrett, thanks for the idea, because uh, that made this podcast episode possible. And, of course, uh, we thank Sam for uh, taking the time. We, uh, we go to some interesting places, mentally. Um, it is one of uh, those, you know, if, if you're one of those people who've had a conversation with me or if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that I don't think in a linear fashion. I, uh, I just don't. I don't do it. I think thematically things circle back around. I like those long meandering conversations that are thematically tied together as opposed to chronologically or fit some sort of fact pattern. Uh, I'm a tail spinner uh, and a weaver and uh, 3x structure is not for me. Maybe that's why I like uh, non-traditional theater so much. This is definitely one of those, but in a good way. And, uh, oh, just, we'll get into it in a second. But first, the news. All right, uh, spooky season. It's almost upon us, which means you know what thematically a lot of the stuff is going to be. Um, Let's start off with the most exciting thing uh, in my book. Uh, we all know how partial I am to the Speakeasy Society. They've got a piece called The Hollow, uh, just four nights at Chloe's at the Golden Road Brewery uh, over in Glendale. We're talking Los Angeles right now, everybody. Uh, this is going to be based off Sleepy Hollow. Uh, there's food involved with the ticket, which is why it's about 65 bucks. You also get some beer, uh, apparently a beer, maybe, maybe a little more than a beer. Um, Find a way to make that happen. Uh, <laughs> love the space, love the company, love the beer. Can't go wrong. Just please don't buy up all the tickets before I have a chance to book mine. I'm still figuring out stuff like uh, the Without Walls Festival, which is happening at the top of October in San Diego. Tickets are finally on sale, including a new piece from Chalk Repertory, written by Ruth McKee. Uh, you're going to want to check that out. Uh, and if you're going to go down to Without Walls, uh, holler at me because I think I'm going too. Um, hey, before that happens, though, we've got office hours here in Los Angeles. What are office hours? Well, I'm glad you asked. Office hours are when I say, hey, I'm going to be at this place. 
uh, namely a bar, uh, at a certain time for a couple of hours, you should come by, meet other people who are immersive theater enthusiasts, and uh, we will jaw it up. The location is the Thirsty Crow. The date is dun 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 dun. He looks it up on the computer because he wasn't looking at it. September thirteenth. That's Sunday. We're gonna start. Uh, in the two o'clock hour, it's happy hour at the Thirsty Crow, uh, $5 drinks. Um, yeah, it's day drinking and talk about theater. Uh, what could be better? Honestly, I can't think of anything better. Hey, I'm taking too long on this thing. Let's uh, let's keep this going here. Uh, San Francisco. Let's go to San Francisco for a second. We Players has a new work coming up, Hero Monster. Uh, it is part of their experiment uh, digging into Beowulf. Uh, it is a movement-based piece. It's happening at the Fort Mason Center Chapel. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, you can check that out in the latest San Francisco issue of No Persinium, which went out this week. Oh, you don't subscribe to the San Francisco issue, but you do subscribe to the Los Angeles or the New York, and you're going to be in San Francisco in the month of October and might want to check it out. How do you find out? It's simple. There's a past issues uh, button if you go to the web version of the newsletter. So, you know, look up the last issue of the newsletter, hit open email in the browser, and boom, you get to the archive and you can get all the details there about Hero Monster in San Francisco. We're also just about to get dates on Hinge, which is the interactive circus coming from the Vespertine Circus. It's going up in San Francisco in November. Uh, Just six dates. They've done a little friends and family announcement. Uh, so the full announcement should be coming up uh, just after Burning Man. Ooh, I wonder why. All right. Hey, uh, you like this podcast, I know, because you're suffering through it right now, which actually means you love it. And if you love it enough, why don't you marry it? You can't marry a podcast, so why don't you just go to Patreon, patreon.com slash no proscenium, and pledge as if this was public media. Uh, pledge a dollar a month, a dollar a month, and you can change lives, namely our lives, because if we get enough money, I will buy a microphone and send it to Zay, and then we will get more out of New York, and I can stop doing these. I mean, I can do fewer of these. It's not that I don't love you guys. It's just that I'm really curious as to what's going on in New York, and I can't afford to fly there. Simple as that. Uh, Before we get into uh, the tape, which we will in a second, uh, I just need to make a quick program note on this one. So still figuring out the new microphone, and for about the first half of this one, it's going to sound like Sam is off mic, Uh, because he is, because I set the knob to the wrong switch thing. It's all these little graphics, and I thought I was doing the bi-directional thing, and it turns out I, was, I wasn't doing the bi-directional thing. I was doing the all-around-the-table thing. So uh, the first half of the recording kind of sucks, and uh, the second half is much, much, much better. Um, so yeah, uh, what Sam talks about is great, so uh, tough it out, and uh, you will be rewarded about halfway through. It'll be very obvious when that happens, and it is literally in the middle of a thought of Sam's. So um, just, you know, prepare yourself. On that note, hey, uh, here's that tape. Again, first half kind of sucks. Second half is great. Just talk about the quality of the recording, not what Sam's going to say. Here we go. Usually we just wind up sort of stumbling in. That's Um, fine by me. I stumble around a lot, though. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I I, I take a cue from, like, 
the nerd is such a popular podcast and that thing never has a proper start so no, you just start talking it used to drive me insane, and then I realized that's almost the entire charm of it. So, um, so Sam, uh, let's have you identify your voice, yeah, because we've started. Uh. Uh, so I'm Sam Roberts. This is my voice. Um, <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about myself if that's helpful. I think that'll help people. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I do a wide variety of things, um, but I am the festival director for Indiecade, which is the International Festival of Independent Games. Um, I also am the assistant director of the interactive Don't worry media about it. <laughs> and games program here at the University of Southern California, uh, where we teach game design. Um, I have been a stage director for 20 years, maybe. Uh, I mean, depends on how far back you go, right? But uh, I've directed plays for a long time. I studied direction and adaptation in college. Um and uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the top level. Those are the things I do. I, I've worked in the entertainment industry doing a wide variety of stuff for a very long time. So the thing that I want to talk to you about today is, uh, most of all, is it's sort of like how, one, I'll have you kind of give like a bit of an elevator pitch for IndieCade yeah. to this audience. So like the people who listen to the podcast are people who are into immersive theater, interactive theater. Yep theatrical experiments and whatnot and they're always looking for sort of new stuff to do so let's start there like what 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 would they find why would they care why would they care indicate yeah yeah yeah. um it's a great question because and it's something i i I have a lot of practice answering actually a lot of people will say it's like well i don't really like video games so why would i go to indicate and the very first answer is because we don't only show video games (laughs) we are in fact a festival of play is the way we like to frame ourselves and in a lot of ways uh of innovation in play and of the future of play. So we are looking at every kind of space where people explore interaction design and play and interactive media and storytelling. Um, That means we've been showing VR now for four years. There's a lot of cool stuff there. It means for years we've shown what we call big games, um, which, uh, you know, tag is a big game, but... uh, so are things uh, like a game we showed at E3 this year, which is called And Maybe They Won't Kill You. And uh, and Maybe They Won't Kill You is a script uh, for play by one player and performance by another. The performer plays a police officer, and the player plays a young black man trying to get home without getting shot. And there's a script and a set of rules for how that police officer... Uh, interacts with the player and a set of rules for what the player can choose to do and you play through the script that, sometimes you get shot and sometimes you don't that was Akira's game right? that is Akira Thompson's game yes there's there's actually um, for if you, you guys are interested in that there is a, a digital web version that gives you a sample of the experience yeah. although it is I will say not anywhere near as impactful as actually playing in person with another human being oh yeah uh, which is I think hopefully part of what your audience would be interested in. Oh, yeah. No, without a doubt. Like, if anything, it gives you a sense of what the script and what the rules are like and what the bare mechanics. But that sort of blurring the lines between performance and game um, is... I think for a lot of the audience is really, really interesting. I know I know there's a few people who... And it's, it's something that I personally have a deep interest in and, um, and it's one of the reasons Indiecade moves in these directions, right, is that we, I at least, believe very firmly that like play is something that's very universal. It's lasted for a long time. 
um, just in fact like theater and performance, and that both are about this connection often between the performers or the storytellers and the audience, and play the audience and the storytellers are often the same people, whereas theater, they're separated, but both, there's this emotional connection, there's this experience of being in a place live and having something happen. Yeah. Um, and that that touches you quite deeply. Um, and we're in what I think of as sort of almost like a historical blip where people have been playing games forever. Um, you know, right now the word gamer means I play Halo, but everyone's a gamer. My 92-year-old grandfather can't get through a day without playing Pinochle. Can't get through a day without playing Pinochle, right? <laughs> that, as far as I'm concerned, makes him a gamer. Um, yeah. And, you know, these card games and sports and, uh, you know, gambling, all this stuff has existed forever. And yeah. There's a visceral joy that you get about that moment, about the random chance, about navigating systems of rules and learning things about other people or about the world through them. There's something almost inherently human about the need to play yes. and and it's definitely one of the ways that children learn but I, I think we were in denial for a long time that it continued on into adulthood yep. and like you know we never talked about you know poker as like well this is people expressing their need to play right. but that's exactly what it is and I think actually if you look people like to play with other people and mm. in fact solo play is something that we have identified as childlike only Hmm. Um, and with the invention of video games uh, big complex play experiences that could be played alone suddenly existed right Um, and were quickly identified as being for children (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then you know uh, as the children that grew up with them became older and older and older everybody was like okay well maybe adults can play them so how do we make these things adult oh you know sex and violence now they're for grown-ups which is not actually how we make things right um and so as we reach this point right now where we have augmented reality and virtual reality and wearable computing and mobile computers that we're carrying in our pockets um and this media culture that is fast and immediate and if it exists to be downloaded you can watch it anywhere anytime it doesn't happen at the time Um, There's a confluence, I think, of desire around taking these experiences that we've been thinking about and making them immediate again and making Mm. them connected to other people again and sometimes making them live and about presence, right? Right. Um, The P word, that all-important term. It's really important. It's, uh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I could go off on a tangent about presence. You know, I think presence is... Um, Do it. <laughs> I think presence is something that is still to this day underestimated in so many ways because when we start to talk about presence in a very serious way, we quickly end up uh, in realms that people dismiss. Um, and by that I mean, like, when you talk about presence uh, as being really meaningful and impactful... You're talking about the same kinds of things that people talk about when they talk about seeing auras, about psychic connection, hmm. uh, about Reiki healing, right? I um, I don't actually necessarily believe in all of these things, um, and I certainly think that there are fine lines to be drawn between mysticism and fraud and spirituality and reality. Um, but the idea that there is something 
fundamentally key and important about the presence of another human body in front of you in a room. It changes the way a room moves. Whether you want to believe purely scientifically that that's about the subtle changes in airflow and the release of pheromones and like the electric, like the literal electrons that are jumping back and forth between two human beings' skins, or whether you want to refer to that stuff as being more about psychic connection, I, I don't care. Yeah. But we have to acknowledge that like there's something very real about a person and not just the meat, right? right? But like, they there's something about an awareness in a space with you, sharing awareness. I think that awareness and, and attention, right? So attention like, attention is it, very key. It, and and we're, I hold that you know we're, and I think I would imagine the science backs me up on this that you know our our conscious attention span, our bandwidth, right? Just yeah. neurologically speaking, is a lot tighter than the full capacity of our brain so yes. we're, we're always picking up on all these little subtle things and we're only we're only aware of a couple at a, at a time in fact there's quite a bit of science uh, i find this super interesting um about the way we start to shape our conception of the world around us is one in which we learn to throw out a bunch of the information that we receive yeah your body, particularly your eye, your senses are gathering vast amounts of information from everything going on around you. And you learn, as you learn to like be perceptive and take in the world around you, to only pay attention to the stuff that's quote-unquote important. Right. Um, and they, they've done scientific research on this. Um, you know, this is... Uh, oh, God, I wish I could cite some of these studies. I'm not as smart as my wife who can <laughs> cite these studies, right? Um, but... Uh, you know, we train ourselves. Our brains get trained. They do this thing with these cats and these straight up and down lines. <laughs> and it totally messes up their brains when they raise them in these rooms with these vertical lines. Oh, no. Because it changes the way they learn to perceive the world around them, right? And um, so much of what we think of as perception and attention and all that is learned behavior that's based on survival, right? right. Like we have taken our tools our hardware and developed software that makes the hardware useful for the continuation of the species right um, go ahead oh no there's like there's like 16 different directions i could go off from at this point and i, and I love that because like one of the things you're talking about this stuff and it's reminding you of a conversation i had with with someone else here at usc the other day uh paul debevic who's mm -hmm. over at the ict and uh, he, he's doing all this stuff with like light field capture which is like this thing that's going to push VR in certain ways. And as we were talking, I was, he was mentioning that, you know, as the, the VR stuff gets to be more, uh, you know, complex, we're, we're, one of the things that's happening is, actually, I'm not even doing this right. It's, it's more that like, when you're in the VR, you're, you're pulling in more information. And so you get to this, this point where that's how it makes it feel more real. But then when things break, when, thing, when there's inaccuracies in the VR, it, it's like that much easier to like reject what you're seeing as real mm -hmm. because all of a sudden more of your brain's turned on. We got to talking about the Renaissance and about like the, the advent of uh, perspective yep. in visual arts. And you know, all of a sudden here's this extra dimension that's closer to reality than it ever was before and you didn't expect to see it until suddenly it's there and more of your brain turns on. Like when you look at like a cave painting, mm -hmm. you have one reaction. When you look at something from one of the Renaissance masters, you have a completely different reaction. 
and that's almost like where we're we're standing at on the technical side it's of what's a, going on. It's the uncanny valley problem. Exactly. Talk about you know the closer and closer it gets to reality, the more you're not reality, but to the same the photo real. Yeah, yeah. The, the more you're aware of the flaws. Um, and in fact, when I'm ever I think about the uncanny valley, I always go back to Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, mm. um, which is a wonderful book um, that has a lot of value for people actually working in all of these fields. You know, and he talks about different artistic styles and he talks about representational versus realistic and the spaces in between he talks about it as a continuum right um and that this um this is like super the closer you come to representing reality to presenting representational art of any kind the more aware we are of the flaws of the things that aren't real. And the further away you go, the more we accept it as metaphor. Mm. And instead, what becomes interesting is the single characteristic that you have managed to convey. And in fact, we do convey less information, but we convey information more clearly, if that sort of makes sense. It does. Uh, does, does this suggest maybe why some of the more successful immersive pieces rely on or are rooted in dance and rooted in movement because that's such a metaphorical way of I think that that's a very insightful actually I, what I will say is a co- not a, as a, a a corollary and then I sort of come back and address your question is that this also um, Brenda Romero has been doing this series of games called um, The mechanic is the metaphor, mm. um, right? And this is actually something I think about a lot with game design, right? Games are systems, and they're systems that represent systems out there in the world, usually, although they could be fantasy systems or other kinds of systems. Um, and what play gives us an opportunity to do is to explore a system in a safe space. Um, we talk here a lot about the magic circle. You step inside the magic circle, and you can do things you wouldn't do outside the magic circle. For theater people, this already is sounding super familiar. <laughs> um, uh, right? And um, But the... The system that you've developed to play in is the framework, and that system is that metaphor, right? Um, that these, when when you can acknowledge that a system is a metaphor, then you can it, it reinforces that magic circle, right? Like the idea being that, like I know that this is not the actual way that. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of um, Mall Industria's work at all. No. Um, it's a s- Italian game development studio. It, uh, Paolo Pettericini's the, the sort of guy over there. He teaches now, actually, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and they made this great game, like, years ago called the McDonald's Game, where you play a tycoon running at McDonald's, and first you're, like, in the McDonald's setting, like, the rules for how your workers do stuff and then eventually you're like bulldozing rainforests to raise cows and all that right and like it's not a literal it's not exactly how it works right. to be running McDonald's but it's using this core systemic metaphor of essentially resource management and planning I need right. this much stuff to do this much stuff and it's allowing you to explore the moral conflicts of running a multi-billion world multi-billion dollar worldwide company 
through this resource management metaphor. There's a million things wow. that go into running a company that aren't that, but he's channeling it through that, right? Yeah. And when you can view it through that, you can suddenly understand the giant critique that Powell has of multi-billion dollar companies, but also the like, how some of these choices come to be, right? It, it's easy to reject, uh, you know, a, and putting words in the designer's mouth, so I'm not going to do that. But you could say, you know, that like when somebody's like, "Oh, these people that run these companies are evil," you know, right. and then that doesn't you don't think about it, right? right. And uh, when you have to explore this system that way, you see how easy it is to do these things and not feel evil because you have this other result that you're trying to get to. Right. You stepped inside the magic circle, and suddenly you're enacting the thing, and now you're thinking about it in a more deep level. And right. that happens because that system is a metaphor. Because it's not the reality. Right. And then to get back to what you're saying, which I think is really insightful, is in fact, yes, dance is so effective at this because it relieves that tension of reality for the audience. I go into the experience and I'm being immersed in the theatrical experience. And if you were to immerse me in a sort of like latter 20th century American... Um, piece of like um realistic theater and i was just like sitting there on the stage during long days journey into night trying to talk to these angry drunks i would be scared and upset (laughs) and maybe that's your point so you can do that and that's super valuable right but like Allowing me to see that the participants in the play, that the characters, that the actors are engaged in this act that is clearly not human existence, that is this metaphor, that is this artistic expression, that is dance, allows me to accept that this is all a metaphor for the way people can be. And now I can be here safely. I can step inside to the magic circle and participate inside what's going on without necessarily alighting these much more complex fears of a full, real life, you know? Right. I don't want to be pulled into a small hut with Macbeth's maid and while she gives me maybe poisoned tea if, like... She's actually a maid, and maybe that tea is actually poison. <laughs> it's really upsetting to yeah, me. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? And yet, like, if I'm in sleep no more, and one of these characters pulls me in and gives me, serves me this tea, and all this strange stuff is happening, like, I know, you know, I've put yeah. on a mask. This person is dancing. I'm in a special space. That, that crossing of the threshold, um, to get Campbellian for a second, um, if you don't know what I meant by Campbellian, you probably aren't listening to this podcast. Um, to, that crossing of the threshold uh, and, and initiating the audience into that world on the other side of the magic circle, something similar happens in games in, in the sense of the tutorial. Yep. And I wonder if you could kind of speak to these areas of design challenge yep. between bringing, particularly because we got this world where we're trying to get audiences that are used to a very observational role to enter into a participatory role, yep. uh, even if that participatory role is just to be uh, able f- to freely move around the space. Yep. Like I- I've watched people not move around the space because they didn't realize they could. They just naturally formed a proscenium arc they around just the performers. Stand there. Yeah. Um, so I was talking about this just the other day. Um, I think it's important to realize that there are two kinds of tutorial and that all games have them, all successful games, 
pretty much have them both. And sometimes they're the same, and sometimes they're separated. But the first kind of tutorial is very straightforward, and it is a teaching of the interface. Mm. This is how you walk. This is how you talk. This is how you pick up an object. This is how you bounce something off a wall. This is how you solve the puzzles. Whatever the game is asking you to do, there's a core interface that you have to use to work with it, and almost every game will teach you that. Even Hit if it's X the, to glide. Right, even yeah. if it's in the first 10 seconds, an arrow pointing at the button you tap that's a one-button game. It's like, tap this button, you tap it, and something happens. You're like, okay, I figured it out. That's done. Um, the second kind of tutorial is much, much more important, particularly for what you are talking about, but requires the first. They have to know how to interface. That's the first. And then what the second kind of tutorial is, is essentially a, a promise. It's saying, I'm going to give you right now the experience arc of playing this game. The whole thing. And I'm going to do it fast or mm. you're going to leave. Right? <laughs> like, if it takes you three hours to figure out why you're engaging in the thing, you're not going to spend three hours. This is how we talk, at least in the game design field, right? Right. Um, so, what you want to do is in two minutes, three minutes, um, if you get really deep into this, I mean, game designers will, uh, particularly on digital tools, you know, you'll put in hooks and do play tests and like watch when people are dropping to set you. It's like, okay, everybody's dropping in 90 seconds. So, I have to deliver this before the 90 second mark. But now that I've learned the interface, you need to promise me what I'm getting for using it, right? Um, trying to think of like a good way to um, talk about this. But like this second type of tutorial is, um, like I said, it's like a promise. It's uh, a quick run through the experience arc of the larger piece. Um, it's a way of saying when you use the interface that you are learning right now or you have just learned, you're going to be rewarded in this way. You do this and in return you get this and you want that, so now you're going to do it more. Right. Um, it, it would be, you know, it, this is much more manipulative than I'm necessarily talking about, but right. like if you talk about slot machines, they're engineered to give pretty regular low payouts right right so that if i sit down and i pump some money in i'm supposed to in a reasonably quick amount of time get some money back and now the machine has taught me why i want to be friends with the machine right. oh i put money in and pull the lever and then you give me money sometimes <laughs> and then i just pour coins in and i pull the lever over and over and over and over um so for a game this often gets wrapped into a tutorial level where you're teaching me all of the mechanics. There's often many mechanics, many different ways of interacting, so you do that one by one. And they're happening in small experience loops where I use the mechanic and I get the reward from the system, whatever that is. And for some video games, it's very simple. It's like flashing lights and sound. Yeah. For some more complex video games, this is like pieces of story that are slowly delivered to me as I accomplish things. Like at um, root, it's like somehow activating your dopamine receptors on some level yeah. exactly right um and you know these systems get very complex and there's different kinds of pleasure people get in different ways that reward systems are structured and that's all fine yeah they get fractal that's amazing yeah. um but so this is the this is the thing that i think that 
immersive theater can do very well, but is very hard. And it, it's not always what a theater, it's not always what somebody making a piece of immersive theater is thinking about. But if you think about like, even traditional narrative structure for like a play or something like that, you want to give uh, the audience something fun and juicy at the beginning, yeah. a question that they are like, "Oh, now I have to watch the whole play because I want to know what happens." Like you know, scenes have to pay off. Like yes. it can't just be the whole. And this is something like when I try and write dramatically, I yeah. suck at. Right? It's like you know, trying to make a scene pay off when you're trying to structure this much larger. Uh, narrative can be difficult because it's like, well, what what am I giving? Am I giving too much away the big thing? And if it's like, well, if you have to give away the big thing, then you're just probably not that good at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe we could dive because I, I think that's such a cogent point. This this idea that you know you, you we've when you're doing immersive, uh, you want to be thinking about what what little kind of fractal piece can you chop off and say like this is what it's about like like that little tutorial moment what's the overture right is yeah. another way somebody has phrased this to me right this is an overture in many ways is like here is the whole arc of this music piece and this thing is going to come back and you're waiting for it to come back and it's teaching you how to understand the music you're about to listen to and then mm. it goes away and you go through the whole thing and then the overture comes oh. back you're like oh I know what's happening right yeah, yeah. and like uh, just that can be easier I think sometimes for a theatrical mind to think about it yeah. an overture or you know if you look at a, a TV show you know uh, what or a movie what's the bit before the credit sequence <laughs> right yeah. because it should do that it should pose this mystery give you the reason why and give you like a mini arc of the thing you know there's a very like classic way they do this in homes where it's like they solve a little mystery beforehand and then you go on to the new mystery Um, and yeah I think that there's and when they're they're awesome they link back into that little mystery mystery, it's like oh it turns out that that thing was exactly that's the like very best wonderful way to do it and there's a lot of different ways to do this so I think that one thing that people think about a lot now is um the transition from one world to the next. Um, mm. And I think this does grow out of the Campbell thing. I think it's certainly the way that um, uh, Punch Drunk tends to approach it. You know, you arrive and you're in this very interesting, different space and there's cocktails and strangely dressed people and you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm like getting ready for something new and different. And then the invitation into the space is very theatrical and very movement oriented and you ask the audience to move. And then you give them a, a a choice right away, right? It's like, which floor are you getting off at? Yeah. You know, and then they know, oh, I get to choose where I'm going, you know? Um, and that that sets a rubric for the way they interact. And um, the mask, I think, does the same thing. The done in the mask helps with that entering into the space. And those masks are very pointed, right? So particularly if you look at the other people in their masks, you immediately notice that you are interested in their attention that they are pointing at things and therefore you must be pointing at things and even if that's subconscious again it's an invitation it's like you create this by focusing your attention at places well and even like the that nose you can kind of just outside your 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 Mm -hmm. uh, vision like the nose is there extending kind of like aiming it's like a cursor pointing you which way you're going Going. yeah um you're not necessarily going to be conscious of that unless you're doing what we're doing right now yeah. and like breaking it down like oh yeah I was pointing with my nose into but they time. don't have to be conscious of it for it no, to work right? not at all um, better if you're not, not in some ways in fact yeah so I think that this is one way that we're seeing this done this tutorializing and this sort of setting of tone this giving a 
taste of what the reason you're going to continue to do that. Um, but there are other potential ways to approach it. And I think actually as more people explore the space of immersive theater, you'll start to see more uh, different kinds of exploration around yeah. that. Um, particularly, I also, you know, I just happen to think that like there's a good chance and this is informed a lot by what I see happening in games and I've seen happen over the past 10 years. I've been involved in doing sort of the independent and art game thing for a long time now, actually. Um, but, like, there's a lot of excitement around new, cool, interesting things and how these things can be integrated. And the stuff that people seem most excited about, both as audience and designers, is stuff that isn't worried about its media box or it's genre box it's smashed up and it's crazy and there's like connections happening that don't normally uh, happen you know um you know what an alternate reality game is i assume i definitely do yes uh, the audience might, may not yeah yeah there's a couple of people in the audience who are who are very intimately uh associated and knowledgeable of them but but uh, yeah for the people who don't know yeah so don't. um the first one of these that's generally acknowledged is this game that was called the beast that was a uh, advertisement essentially for the spielberg kubrick mashup film ai um and what these games are the best way to think of it is it is a game mastered and by game master i'm talking about you know there's an active mind running a game and responding to the players this is most traditional in like dungeons and dragons or something like that but you see it in a lot of places these days um it's a game mastered experience where a narrative is embedded into the real world and feels like it's a part of the real world so you are in reality but you are engaging with this alternate version of reality um and i actually think the best way to explain some of this is to give just a light touch of how the beast worked so like uh they usually work with rabbit holes there's something that draws people in and exposes them to this alternate reality so um trailers for the movie ai you could see that there was a credit for this like special robot handler or something like that and if you went and looked at who this person was it took you to this website that was suddenly inside this web ring of sites that were all the websites for these 22nd century companies and people uh, and if you started to read them you started to be exposed to this narrative that was the narrative of the beast um, and start to get interested in who these people were and from there you could email these people or you could hack these websites and solve some hidden puzzles that were in the information there and start to cover clues that opened up new places to go and more parts of the narrative um, and when I say it's game mastered is as the players start to crack this stuff open and expose the narrative you know the game runner and the game running team are furiously like putting <laughs> yeah. putting together new content and new puzzles and figuring out often and this is like one of the great clues i'm a i dungeon master dnd all the time i've been doing it a long time I, I love it very much this is one of the great secrets to being a good game master is in fact if you stick to only your plan mm -hmm. it will be terrible yeah what you need to do is pick up on what the audience is the players are telling you they're into and slowly shape your plan to respond to what they do, you know? Yeah. And so um, by playing in these games, you really shape the narrative and players sometimes become active characters in these games. And um, it's a very like sort of big, interesting thing. Um, but what's great about alternate reality games is 
they happen a little bit on the web. Sometimes they have actors and are happening in real life. Um, there's this one that a company called Area Code did where there was this stuff hidden on TV and in real life um, that was all being fed by this just game that you play that was like a puzzle game called Drop 7. Um, there was an ARG attached to Drop 7? Yeah. Wow. The, the game was called... the chain factor which is the original version of drop seven so it was for the tv show with the like mathematician crime solver numbers um maybe i think uh, so. it's hard for me to remember there's like five of those i think but there's this yeah. episode where this evil game designer makes this game that's going to crash the world economy <laughs> <laughs> they designed if this. Only. Yeah. <laughs> but so when when you played chain factor um every once in a while it would throw a big error and the error would expose as they often do, if you like go into the error message, you can see actual lines of code, right? right? And there's commented out clues in the code that help the people in the real world following the story solve more clues and expose more story bits. Right. And as they took those clues and solved those puzzles, it actually unlocked new game modes in Chain Factor. Oh, wow. Which then when people played those new game modes, it revealed new clues. So it was this loop between people who just wanted to play this puzzle game and people who were trying to solve the and super interesting to me. Yeah. Frank Lance gave a brilliant talk about it at GDC like four or five years ago, which hopefully is online somewhere, but I don't know. Well, and and I know some people, I didn't get lost, but I, I imagine like a couple, yeah, a couple have, people got a little got, lost. Got a little lost. But um, I think what, what applies here to, you know, immersives is this, this sense of that loop of your you've got this set of interaction rules. You've, you've taught people this is the rubric, this is mm -hmm. how this world works. And then you can start changing the way the world works a bit as you go on. You're adding complexity based I mean, on what they've done. It's Shakespeare's acts, too. Like It's yeah. like act one. And you go back to tutorials, like a really well-designed puzzle game on your phone. You play four levels where the core mechanic works just this one way. And then they reveal to you, you can do something slightly different with it. It's still the same mechanic, but it works in a slightly different way. And you play four levels like that. And then you play four levels where they add another layer to it. This is just good design, right? Yeah. And Shakespeare is often the same way, right? These acts are additive, right? He establishes the story. He introduces complicated. They don't, I don't even need to be talking about Shakespeare. I can just talk about acts and plays. Yeah. <laughs> you introduce a complication. It shifts the story, right? And you, you add these layers as you go. And that's exactly how it can work in immersive theater. And it's exactly how this sort of uh, thing I'm talking about with ARGs works. Uh, the reason I got around to ARGs in the first place, though, is I actually think that this idea of mixing the physical present world with additive information or interaction or experience in different forms of digital world or separate places, uh, pure text or music or stuff like that, is something that holds a lot of keys to the future development of immersive theater. Mm. Um, and it's not too wildly different from what we've been doing for centuries, right? We already are like at the point where we think of like lighting design and audio design as layers on top of like just the presentation of text through words um, on top of staging, you know, ways we augment and enhance that stuff. And um, I think this... There's a, a, a direction that some of this is going to go where there's this broad net 
of um, sensory and media information that's being delivered to people participating in these experiences. And that that'll actually allow for one of the challenges I see for immersive theater, which is that different people want to play in different ways and at different levels. Yes. And that comes back to the chain factor thing, right? Some people just want to, they're approaching it from the game side, but some people just want to play a puzzle game. Right. And some people want to, like, expose this hidden conspiracy in the real world by solving much more complex, like, puzzles that need to be solved by many people. And so they built an experience where those people could interface with it on all of those different levels. And um, Sleep No More has this to some degree, right? You can be a very passive observer, follow the big crowd, never get pulled into a private room, and have an amazing experience. Um, but you can also end up getting pulled into the private room and have a whole different level of experience. And um, my understanding, in fact, is that the performers look very carefully for the right people for the private rooms. There are some people who don't want to go who they can have a bad experience if they right. go to the private room there's some people who go there desperate to get pulled into a private room and they, my understanding is they won't pick them either yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well and right. there's, there's 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 like web rings out there that teach you like this is where you need to stand this is what yep. you need to do like like there's there's basically a, a a cheat guide to sleep no more out there and and then there's the idea of the replayability of it yep. like the, they say it takes eight times to see to everything see all the content yeah. and that doesn't even include the one-on-ones yep um, I want to. I want to. I'm going to skip tracks here for a second because I think we could go down this one for a long time. Um, but I am curious about this space uh, that the narrative games that have. I mean, games have always had narrative. Yeah. Uh, like, and I'm speaking here in terms of computer games. Like, that's not a shocking thing. But there does seem a bit of a, a renaissance of late. Some of which is taking direct inspiration from the immersive theater world. So we've got stuff like Gone Home. And uh, the same, the Fulbright is company is doing, uh, or maybe there's Fulbright now, are doing Tacoma, and they yep. they directly, you know, shout out to Sleep No More is inspiring yep. them. So for immersive theater kids who aren't necessarily computer game folks, yeah, what would be their map? What 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 would be your starter deck? Of, of experiences for people to chase. Well, if we're just talking about digital experiences, yeah, um, I, I, something to be instructive. Yeah, I, yeah, Gone Home is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful place to start. Um, there's a whole genre of sort of modern indie games that are what I would call um, exploratory narratives, and um, Gone Home is a very great example of it. But like. Um, they just released Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which is by the guys who made Dear Esther. Um, and it is way more just like I'm in an environment and like moving through this environment and exploring it. I'm learning stuff about the world. And this is what these these sort of ambient exploratory environmental narratives are. Um, I think they're very interesting to people who do immersive theater because environmental storytelling is a big part of what makes immersive theater uh, function and drive. I think if you look at like the very, very first... I, I'm going to back off the statement first. But if you like look at some of the early stuff that's going on in the recent build to this, like Mary Zimmerman's 11 Rooms of Proust, mm. um, which she did in Chicago in the late 90s, um, 
it's all about making spaces that encapsulate these things and you move into the space and it's um and you know if you look at the work that punch drunk loves they bought a building and built a hotel in it so you know so whatever um so these exploratory environmental narratives are a great place to start with some of that and dear esther is a ghost story everybody's gone to the rapture is in some ways explanatory in the title um gone home is a really excellent piece of this that deals with uh sort of a piece of narrative that is more complex than some of this stuff will go into and hides it and tells the story in a million ways but comes back actually to and this is why i think it's good for you're right to mention it for a theatrical audience you know the voice acting in that game is really good Mm-hmm. and um good acting uh, as i assume everyone listening to this podcast knows makes a huge difference um, but then there's other stuff out there that does some of this in different ways so something that is still very exploratory not super game like but um feels more like a game in some ways and um, has a very specific mood um, and characters and people you interact with is Kentucky Route Zero. Do you know Kentucky Route Zero? I do. I haven't played it, but I know it. Kentucky Route Zero is super cool. Um, And it... So going home, you can just sort of explore this whole space and sort of reveal these stories and you go, Kentucky Route Zero is good because like you can just get really involved in like a space or like deciding that there must be a thing somewhere and like diving into it and manipulating. It's not very gamey, but you start to get this sense of what happens, I think, in the most exciting sort of game spaces that are immersive in this way, that you can like play with and explore these little parts of the world. Um, And this is the joy of, again, to me, play in games. And the thing that I think immersive theater is moving towards capturing some aspects of what we haven't seen a lot of, which is that games are systems and we get all of this incredible feedback and information by playing with systems and it's like it's how we learn it's how kids learn um and kentucky route zero isn't as systemic as like a true system only game and i have plenty of colleagues who would get up and start screaming about like insisting that a game have a system i I don't know that that's here or there but um you know this idea that you can explore something and get different kinds of feedback and keep on exploring different things you do with it. That that, mm. that is the core activity of play, uh, whether or not it's a rigorous system or an environment or a loose system. Um, but the idea that it's like, oh, now I'm in this room, I'm going to flip the light on and off and on and off and see what happens you yeah. know what i mean um and that that's actually super exciting to me yeah. <laughs> um and that that's this thing that immersive theater um is getting closer and closer to doing you know um again like talk about sleep no more it's like oh i found this cool room yeah. and there's nothing in here i can keep on going back and then i can wait a little while and go back i can wait a little while and i can go back and like at some point, something's going to happen in there. And, like, that's not quite like being able to, like, rawly manipulate the environment to see how it reacts. But it is this beginning of, like, I can poke this different ways. I can try to come at this room from another direction and see if I can see something special in there, even if I can't enter it. This level of agency, I think, can be intimidating for 
people who are just dipping their toes mm-hmm. into this kind of design. Um, and indeed, I mean, I really do think of immersive theater as a branch of experience design, yep. which is why it folds into alternate reality games and video games and everything yep. else. And uh, theme park design. Oh, oh yeah. We but, didn't even talk about theme park design. We didn't even it's t- a huge part. Well, well it's <laughs> funny. The, the person who... One of the reasons why I'm interviewing you is that one of the one of the Imagineers really wanted us to talk about uh, you know, narrative games. Yeah. So uh, one of the people who listens to podcasts. So so there we go. Um, uh, who I don't know many of them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you offline. Um, but for the, the what I was maybe driving at was: is it necessary for that agency to be real, or can it be illusory? Well, it's a great question um i also don't think i don't think that that question is actually as black and white as it sounds agency is real if i feel like i have it period and there's plenty of people who would disagree with me about that but like to sit to go back to dungeon dragons which we talked about a little right like if I'm designing an adventure for D&D, eh, I will have these, like, points, this content that I will make that I know I'm going to use. And then I talked about responding to the players, right? D&D, you really have to do this. Wherever they go, that's where they are. You know, you, if you, uh, there's a term for this, railroading, right? If you force them to go mm-hmm. the direction you want, then everything is terrible. But... If you make a huge open ex- open exploratory space for them to play in, you have to make a ton of content. We talk about this in games all the time. Make a ton of content, and then most people don't see almost any of it, right? right. Because they just go this direction. Um, but when I'm designing an adventure, I don't make that much content. I make content pick points. And then I improvise the route from A to B in response to the audience in front of me. And what that ends up causing is I leave agency with the players. They can do whatever the hell they want, but they actually have no agency. Because no matter what they choose to do, I'm going to find a way where that takes them where I want them to go. Um, It it makes me think a bit about the Indiana Jones ride uh, at Disneyland where... They say, choose which path you want. And all they're really doing is they're just moving mm-hmm. the... There's one entrance. Yep. They're just shifting the cover of the entrance back and forth, forth to make you think you're going down a different road. And it feels like a different road. I mean, this is why I say that the that it's pretty black and white. That, like, if you feel like you made an important choice, and if you get feedback from that choice that makes you believe that choice is meaningful, then you have agency. Whether or not the reality under the hood is that that choice is meaningful. How, how this is a hard question, because uh, second we bring this up, I'm thinking, all right, I've got a space. I've, I'm trying to give people the illusion that they've got that agency and try and apply that sort of uh, improvisational theater approach to role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I have a space. I've got physical you know it's, it's not strange yeah it's yeah it's not like a, a procedurally generated virtual map sure. where it's just like oh they chose the fairy forest so like let the computer build a fairy forest mm-hmm. it's like i got three doors i gotta shove actors into into one of those rooms yep. so i mean how 
Where would you start in terms of trying to figure this? This is this is this is a beautiful puzzle. Where would you start trying to figure out how to do that in immersive theater? Like, yeah, it's a it's game. a great question. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're gonna solve it, but I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I so I would start with my constraints. Okay, my constraint is I have one room and I can only dress it, maybe, a couple of ways, maybe just one way, honestly, mm-hmm. right? So then, all of my choices can't affect that because that is a constraint. Where do I have flexibility? Um, where do I have affordances? We talk in game design about affordances a lot, um, particularly when you're looking at designing for different pieces of hardware, right? It's like a phone has a couple of cool affordances. The screen is touchy. It, uh, if you shake it, it knows. It's got GPS in there, so if I walk across the room, it can do it. Oh, it's got a speaker, so, can, so these are like affordances. They're things I can play with, right? Um, so if I'm making an immersive theater piece, I first start with what are my affordances. I have four incredibly talented actors who can do a lot of different accents, but just one room and a limited amount of money to dress that room. Okay, so the room has to stay the same, but since these actors can do lots of different kinds of accents, I can make the choices that players are making be reflected or responded to. I can give feedback through that affordance Mm. i have to think about where i can give the good feedback right it's about designing within constraint it's about deciding where to give the feedback it's about you don't have to do everything to make a choice feel meaningful you just have to do something so you know if my actors are very talented and can do those different things then i might say let's design a story where the audience's input is all about shaping who these people are Mm. not where these people are but who um you know, and so the easiest way to do this, and the one that we saw before there was even immersive theater, is the what happens, right? And it's the the haircutting murder play. What is it called? Oh God! Um, sheer madness. Wow. Right? Yeah. That is, that is outside my knowledge base. So. Oh, it's. It ran for 20 years in Boston and Washington and whatever. And it's like super straightforward. It's a play. There's a murder. It's in a hair salon. And at the end of the play, the audience votes on who they think did it. And then they get one of the three endings based on who they voted on. So did it. like the way the movie Clue on it. Very, very much so. Except right. that there's it a gap. Works. Instead of randomly pulling one of the endings, the audience yeah. is like, oh, he did it! Yeah. And then he did it! And the audience is like, yeah, we decided that. We solved the mystery. <laughs> Whatever. It feels good. Yeah. A little bit. You know what I mean? Um, but that's the like super basic level. Like, let the audience pick the plot. Um, and that actually, people have experimented with this. It's super hard to do. Uh, it's super hard to do in a detailed or fractal way where you start having a lot of yeah. narrative branches, essentially. Right. And, you know, I mean, this is how, like, a choose-your-own-adventure story works, right? <laughs> right? Except since you don't have to have actors who've memorized all the different lines and stuff, you can make the plot much more fractal right. and uh, much more branchy. Right. Um but there's other stuff than plot. There, like I said, there is character. There is space. Um, there is uh, even like light and sound. Um, there are other affordances that we don't always think about being affordances for theater. Um, well, as you're saying this, like I really do think maybe it does. Not that, not that it, there's a, a definitive solve, but the other thing that's coming to mind is, and sorry everybody, I'm going to go to video games for a second is just the backlash that happened around the last of the Mass Effect games. Mm-hmm. Because there, I feel like they had 
they had set up an expectation in their audience through the marketing and through money and through the meta narrative around the game that you as the player were going to have a definitive uh, effect on how this story that took place over three games in the better mm-hmm. part of 10 years was going to play out. Mm-hmm. And if you were thinking about it as you were going to have an effect on the emotional arc of these characters, they were right. Yep. If you thought it was about the plot, uh, they were they were wrong. And man, oh man, did most people think it was about the plot and were they super upset? Yep. And I think about... Uh, my friend Cindy Marine Jenkins went to go see... I know see... Cindy quite oh, well. Okay, you know Cindy. Okay, so... I, uh, I, uh, I set designed Assassins when she directed it with her husband, who used to be my landed and set designer, Dan. You know Dan. Yeah, I know Dan. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, they just moved to Florida. I do know. It makes me super sad, yeah. actually. And, um, and and so Cindy Cindy went and saw this immersive piece down there called The Republic. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she wound up not liking it because they... It was like... It was their last night of, the, of their run, too. And they... You know, in emails and everything they they set out, it was like you have an effect on how this story turns out. And so she went in with you know, God love her, with with the attitude of a QA designer, QA person who's yeah. just going to break the game as yeah. best they can. And she attacked it because it's like they said, oh, you can, you can, and they basically railroaded. They yeah. railroaded the entire way, and it, it so came down to they said you control this story. And people conflate story with plot. Yep. And just like how you, it comes down to teaching that rubric that you were talking yeah. about earlier. It's well, like, yeah. At the very beginning, you go back to the, the talking about the um, tutorials, right? Um, when I talk about how that second tutorial gives you the taste of the experience, it's about setting expectations, not just so that you have a motivation to continue investigating the system or the space or the story or whatever, but because then you feel properly rewarded. At the beginning, real fast, I'm saying, you do this, this is what you get. And, you know, then you can decide if you like that deal. But, like, if I'm telling you, not even showing you, but just telling you, you do this, you get this, and then you go the whole way through, and something that isn't what you think I told you happened, that's a nightmare. Everybody yeah. gets angry, and everybody gets upset. You know, um, one thing that's interesting to me from the time I've been spending in games, you know, doing theater for a long time, you really think about it as art. And just art, mostly. Right. <laughs> you know, most people I know who do theater spend a lot of time. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's art. It's like people are interested in this or they're not because it's artistic. You're not really, like, thinking about it as product. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that there isn't theater that is product. There's plenty, and plenty of people do that. And But games, because of the cultural baggage attached to them... Everybody thinks of his product and not as art. And I come from the side of the game space that really approaches them as art, but you're constantly being asked to think about them as product. Right. And like, if you make a product, the first thing you have to do is establish expectations. If you sell a product with not the right expectations, backlash is huge and enormous yeah. and immediate. You have to tell people what they get, right? Yeah. How is that not make sense? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that that's, in fact, I think that like framing that tutorialization as that idea for immersive theater, as a making a bargain, right? We talk about that in the theater too, like the bargain that you make with the audience when they come in, you know? Um, it's, a lot of it is assumed and 
culturally uh, established for hundreds of years. You know, you sit quietly in the theater. You don't shout. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you don't, don't get talk back to the audience. Plug in your cell right, phone. Exactly. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that deal is breaking down. <laughs> but um, right, but the, you, you can just do it. It's not that hard to figure out. Well, it it can be very hard, but right. to figure out how to say that this is the deal. This is what you do. This is what we do. This is the reward. Right. And then if you can establish that quickly, you've given people who are interested in that reward a reason to keep playing or watching or experiencing. And you've set yourself up to not run into this problem where somebody gets to the end and then is like, that wasn't what you told me was going to happen. Yeah. And, and I think some people hear that kind of statement in, uh, in an artistic context and think, Oh, but I want the audience to come through and be surprised and be transformed. But you can be surprised and transformed and still, that's just then the deal you set up, right? And do it right away at the beginning. Give them, surprise them in this way that subtly transforms them within the first five minutes of your show. And then they're like, oh, if I continue to do this, I'll be surprised and transformed. That doesn't, that's not going to stop them from being surprised and transformed, you know? But it's like, ah. I think this is where you were going, and you should correct me afterwards. But like, oh, I just go where the wind takes me. Well, I just I, I feel like, uh, particularly, you know, there's a a strong thread of like gotcha media that's happened over the past X years. I don't whatever, right? You know, you got your um, don't you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a misunderstanding that's fundamental about that which is like you don't do that well by lying to the audience (laughs) yeah right you do that well by establishing rules and following them and those rules having unexpected results and if you establish up front with the audience that this is what is going to be going on, then they still are surprised at the end. It's as magic. Long as you it's do illusion. It right. yeah. It's the prestige. You yeah. know, I'm going to show you something and then I'm going to take it away and I'm going to bring it back. And that's the thing that's surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could go on forever. Uh, we probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't. So I'll just arbitrarily stop us right here. <laughs> um, we might do this again, Sam. Yeah. Uh, for everyone, for everyone who's out there, uh, this is going to go up uh, this week. But when when is Indicade striking town? Indicade is October twenty second, twenty third. Yeah, Tuesday, Thursday, twenty second, twenty well, so twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of that last weekend in October. It happens in downtown Culver City. Um, if you just want to check out some cool games, we have thirty six finalists, and these finalists stretch from uh, big games to um, things that look more like installation room escape games to video games to card games, sort of everything you could possibly imagine. Um, and that display is open to the general public for free in the fire station in downtown Culver City. Um, But then we also have a festival area with another 80 to 90 games of different types. And the festival tickets are super cheap. You can get a weekend pass or just a one-day pass, and you can come down and experience all of the games that we have. Um, If you're really interested in hearing smart designers talk about the work they do, we have a what we call professional conference called Think Indie. And those tickets are a little pricier, but um, it's very cool. There's some cool sessions that go on. So October 23rd, 24th, 25th in downtown Culver City. Um, IndieK.com is the website. And um, 
you know, our whole goal is to present play experiences that we think are interesting and exciting for a much broader audience, for not people who are quote-unquote gamers, but for the masses of humanity that all love to play. So uh, please come out and check it out. There's a lot of cool stuff. All right, I tried to make the opening short, and it went long again, so let's just do what you have to do. If you want to find No Proscenium online, and for some reason you do not know how to do that, here's what you do. Twitter, at No Proscenium. On Facebook, type in No Proscenium. We're there. I like to put the uh, archives and sometimes some other articles in there. Twitter is where all of the all of the day-to-day announcements go, though. So if you are obsessed with immersive theater, interactive theater, this whole emerging space, uh, like I am, go ahead, follow the Twitter. Uh, if you want to email us, I'd love you to do that because you can give us tips and hints. Uh, say if it was a video game, because the video game is finding more immersive and interactive theater, finding more escape rooms, finding uh, strange speakeasies that have a narrative overlay. All that kind of stuff is what I need your eyes and ears for. You do that by going to no underscore proscenium at outlook.com send us all your show announcements and everything else there uh the medium collection we like to put reviews and whatnot up there gonna put some more up as soon as we've uh, got a chance to see some more shows which is very soon so you go to medium.com slash no dash proscenium i've said it before said it again yeah it's a lot of different no proscenium uh combinations but at least there's a theme hey uh i'm noah nelson at noah j nelson on twitter uh this show exists for you guys. Uh, I am thrilled that so many of you listen to it, although by now there's only like five of you who are listening to this part, but you are the best. Uh, you are why I do this. Um, you probably are one of the people on Patreon, so thank you so much for that. Uh, it really makes all this possible. Uh, let us know what you think of this episode, of any episode. Your feedback makes the show better. What's that? Get a different host? I'm trying to. I'm trying to get Zay to do more often. What? Okay, no. No, I'm not going to stop hosting the show. You can just stop that right now. All right. uh, That's enough. Uh, Really, I've got nothing more to say except I'll see you at the show.